judge ruled in favor of the prosecution to, to bring it in. And both of these escapes, well, the escape and as well as the trip to, to Costa Rica were mentioned in opening um, and they were not objected to by the defense. So that issue is, you know, gone. So it sounds like her best hope here may be some sort of hung jury, uh, but we shall see. Thomas Just, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that does it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts now. Everybody and welcome to Wednesday night. It's great to have you here with us two more days after tonight till the weekend. Just wanted to remind you it's hump day. And what a day it was. Um, for us, it's hump day. For Caitlin Armstrong, it's like, oh, God, day one of my trial. <laughs> I don't know what you say when you're in the holding cell and you're about to go out into the courtroom for the first day of your murder trial. I don't know if you roll your eyes or if you're shaking in your boots. I would be shaking in my boots, you know. Life in prison, no parole stinks. Just saying. So here's what happened. They had the opening statements. We were expecting fireworks and all the rest because Caitlin Armstrong, I don't even know how to brand her, brand her anymore. Is she the yoga mat lady uh, who's alleged to have killed her love interest, uh, the love triangle, and then taken off to Costa Rica and then the plastic surgery and the long hair made short hair and then the escaped and then the Benny Hill because, you know, there's just so many things to talk about with this Caitlin Armstrong. But there she is quietly coming into that courtroom. Look at this. It's, you have to peek around all the people standing in the way, but she's no longer wearing those prison stripes that she was seen out on a, you know, somebody's iPhone uh, camera trying to run from her jail guards because she asked if she could go to the doctor while she was being held waiting for this trial. Uh, no, she's now wearing a suit and it is very conservative and her hair is all one color. And I say that because that's important, believe it or not. Hair played a big factor in all of this. She had long, kinky, strawberry blonde hair when she was on the run to Costa Rica. And then when they found her there, she had short brown hair and a brand new nose. So looks matter. You're going to hear about new information, new never-before-heard evidence that they uh, outlined in the openings. And then also, you're going to hear about the four to five deputies that were... Um, seated around her, because I guess they think she's an escape risk. I wonder if the jury noticed it. Also, uh, you're going to see some incredibly dramatic body cam video tonight of a rescue of a woman who was being held by a captor in a makeshift attic in a garage for four days. And this is right before the cops break in. They don't know what they're going to find in there. They just heard from the people in the house. We think there's the woman being held. And this is bonkers. Uh, they did not know if the woman was a victim or maybe part of the illegal activity that was going on in there. But when you see her emerge from that attic, it's astounding. Wait until you see what he did to her face. Um, let me just tell you, he doused her with gas. He threatened to slit her throat. He beat her with a baseball bat and cuddled her. Allegedly, all of this happening, cuddled her between beatings. That's the guy they arrested. And if you think that's the story, here's the actual story. He had done this three times before, and he'd been convicted and jailed for it. 
He'd held, let me just repeat that. He had held victims for multiple days, beating them, threatening them, kidnapping them. <laughs> this was the fourth time, allegedly. Three times for sure. So how was he on the street? How was he still out there? Going to answer that question in a moment. Exclusive interview coming with one of his victims who suffered through it and then heard about this one after she went through what she went through. Then <clears throat> I'm going to take you to North Dakota because I love North Dakota. It's right below where I used to live. So they have the warm geography in my books. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to a guy who thought he was about to inherit $30 million. What? Amazing. And then there's his girlfriend who's lived with them for 10 years, and she thought she was entitled to part of it as a common-law wife. So police say she dosed his tea with antifreeze. Okay, maybe she figured she's going to get it all. Don't know about that. But then, if you think that's the story, here we go again. There is a twist in this one that nobody saw coming, because the money has vanished. Wait till you hear where it went. Okay, let's start uh, in Texas, in Austin, with Caitlin Armstrong. Again, I don't know what you want to call her, the yoga mat lady who fled to Costa Rica in the airport, the lady with the long, strawberry, blonde, kinky hair uh, who chopped it off, dyed it dark brown and got a nose job and changed her name with their sister's passport in Costa Rica, uh, the lady that busted out of jail and like ran from her jail guards in jail stripes. I mean, there's a lot of brands on this case. So it is, um, well, it's one for the record books, shall we say. Day one, today, opening statements, prosecution and the defense going at it and then telling us there was some stuff we didn't know about, like audio recordings of the last moments of Mo Wilson's life. That's the victim in this case, professional cyclist. She had quite a good friendship with Caitlin Armstrong's former and then again boyfriend. It's a love triangle. They were on a break. But anyway, police have it, prosecutors have it, that that lady killed Mo because she'd slept with her boyfriend. That's what they say. But the defense in this case, despite overwhelming evidence, they say, sorry, there's no proof that Caitlin was there. Have a look uh, at some of the statements in openings. The last thing Mo did on this earth was scream in terror. You hear those screams. There's a surveillance camera with an audio portion to it. We'll play that for you. You hear those screams. Those screams are followed by two gunshots. One to the front of the head, one to the side of the head that hits the index finger as it passes. You won't hear any more screams out there. Five seconds. We intend to prove to you, you put it next year, that after four or five seconds of silence, Caden Armstrong stood over Mo Wilson and put a third shot right in Mo Wilson's heart. You won't hear, and you didn't hear, about any camera footage 
showing Caitlin Armstrong at the scene of this shooting. Despite there being tons of cameras in the area, and you heard opening statements about all the cameras that were in the immediate vicinity of the scene of that shooting, not one captures Caitlin Armstrong at that scene because there isn't any. You did not hear about any direct evidence showing Caitlin Armstrong is responsible for this crime because there isn't any. Isn't it great when you get like that kind of access to a courtroom? Because we pay for these systems, right? This is like, it's called transparent justice in America. I am a big fan of cameras in the courtroom. We're a part of the process. We are the citizens. And we are the ones that do jury duty. But this judge has decided that's all you get uh, for now. Cameras are only allowed today during the openings. Then they'll be allowed again uh, during closings and during the verdict. But you're not allowed to see the witness testimony. So thank God for us that News Nation's national correspondent, Alex Capriello, was in the courtroom for all of it. And he's live with me now. Um, Alex, uh, cases can be won or lost in openings. That is basically the golden rule. So how did it come across to you? What was your gut coming out of it? And maybe more importantly, when you were looking at the jury, what did it look like it was for them? Yeah, I've been following this case uh, for the past year and a half. I knew what I thought was all of the details of it, but gosh, it just felt like I was learning more and more uh, as the hearing was going on. The circumstantial evidence just seems insurmountable. Uh, to the defense's point, there really is no direct evidence, and we're going to see just how important that is, because as the defense put it, if there's any sort of reasonable doubt that Caitlin Armstrong uh, may or may not have committed this murder, then the jury must rule not guilty, if there's any doubt whatsoever. So, Alex, how did she come across? I, we've got this camera angle where we're sort of peeking through other people's heads, and we can just see the back of her head. Right. But what were you able to sort of um, ascertain from her all day long, her comings and her goings? Yeah, I've been to so many of these criminal hearings, and I've seen the way defendants behave. A lot of times they uh, take notes or they hold their head in shame or they whisper to their attorneys. But I really saw none of that today, Ashley. Really, she was just uh, emotionless. She was looking, looking like she was listening. Of course, she was paying attention, looking straight ahead. But I didn't really see much behavior or body language other than just sitting very still and looking straight ahead. Obviously, we can see those images of her. She's not in that black and white uh, jail uniform. She was allowed to wear uh, professional attire, including a pantsuit and a blouse. Uh, she looked like she uh, was well made up. She had her hair cleaned, uh, and it looked like she was just paying attention. Those are important things. I'll get to that in a moment. I just want to make a note that the reason that these defendants come in, sometimes in jail garb and then sometimes not in jail garb, is all about the jury. Juries aren't supposed to see defendants wearing jump, you know, jailhouse jumpsuits because it just makes them look guilty. So it's normal um, that she would come in, in in that suit. But about the hair, um, this is not a um, a flip question. To me, her hair looked long and it looked uniform, like the same color, which is important because inmates aren't allowed hair products to dye their hair. And when she, um, you know, was you know, alleged to have committed the murder, 
Her hair looked like it did on the far left of the screen. Strawberry blonde and long. Then uh, she had these transformations. She was arrested in Costa Rica with her hair lopped off to the shoulders and dyed brown. And then you can sort of see how her nose has changed with the surgery. So her hair seems to have returned to the lighter red, and it seems to have grown about a foot. I'm just sort of curious if that was lost on anybody. No, I don't think it was lost on anyone. So much uh, attention has been paid to the type of uh, moves that she made once she allegedly tried to escape, right? The plastic surgery, the hair dye, the cutting of the hair. So I think everyone was paying attention not only to how she looked, but how she behaved in the courtroom today. Okay, talk to me about all those extra deputies. I, I, my eyes popped out when I heard the number of deputies they assigned to surround her, given the fact that she's been a runner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's probably considered a flight risk in the eyes of every single law enforcement in Austin, Texas. And so uh, that was maybe not all that surprising to me, but of course worth noting, at least four or five sheriff's deputies escorting her into the courtroom when she first uh, entered, and then at least three or four that are sitting around her at all times. Uh, So that was not lost on me, at least. Wow. Four to five deputies. That's like even big burly uh, defendants don't often get that much uh, treatment. So I wonder if the jury was wise to that or if it's their first rodeo, they might not have thought anything about it. But I sure thought it was nuts. Okay, so I want you to just, if you can, go over some of the evidence with me because they sort of laid it out like before the murder, during the murder, after the murder. And a lot of it I hadn't heard about. So walk me through it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's the best way to put it. Three different timestamps. Before the murder, we're looking at the fact that Armstrong was actually reading uh, Colin Strickland's text messages. They shared uh, technology like iPads, and so she was able to see all those conversations that Strickland was having with Mo Wilson. The fact that Armstrong was tracking Mo Wilson through this app called Strava, which is what these professional cyclists use to actually track their times and the sort of routes that they take when they go on their bicycle. And so we learned today that Armstrong was actually monitoring Strava and Wilson's usage of it, including where she was going. In fact, the day before Wilson was shot and killed, uh, the prosecutors alleged that Armstrong looked up her whereabouts four separate occasions. Also, Armstrong looking up photos of the victim before that murder takes place. All right, now let's go to the day of the murder or during the murder. Uh, Prosecutors say they have cell phone data, video surveillance of that Jeep uh, actually being at the scene of the crime. Uh, It shows that that GPS data, that she was actually circling the crime scene for about an hour before that murder happened and that she left two minutes after the gunshots. All of that backed up by video surveillance and also GPS data on that Jeep. Okay, now let's go after the murder. Uh, Apparently, Armstrong was Googling her own name. She was looking at the latest in this investigation all while she was from in Costa Rica. And that actually, when the U.S. Marshals began closing in on her and she could feel that pressure, she actually reset her phone and wiped all of the data from it. And gosh, Ashley, you've been covering this long enough to know that that's not a good sign for any defendant. I was surprised to hear that they found uh, DNA on Mo Wilson's bike, which they allege uh, was thrown in the bushes. Um, possibly by uh, this defendant as well. That's a big one. Okay, real quickly, I only have 10 seconds left, but I am curious about the family of Mo Wilson being in there. Like when some of that really uncomfortable stuff was being discussed, that that she was Mm. screaming while she was being murdered on on the uh, doorbell cam, what was their reaction in court? Yeah, I got to tell you, Ashley, today was a very emotional day. Not only did we hear 
Caitlin Cash, that's Mo Wilson's friend, actually placed that 911 call. They played that audio. But then we also had to watch three or four different body camera videos from different Austin Police Department officers, right? And that includes the man, the officer who actually performed that CPR on Mo Wilson's lifeless body. It was really, really difficult for everyone in that courtroom to watch. Now, to your point, to your question about the family, it was almost too much. In fact, I saw Mo Wilson's father uh, just put his head down. He actually plugged up his ears with his fingers and he refused to watch. And, and I asked him as he was walking out of the courthouse how he was doing and how he felt about being in that courtroom. And he just really said, I don't need to see that. I don't need to hear that. But he told me that he's going to be here every single day that this trial happens. I always feel for the families having to live through this kind of stuff. This testimony is so painful. Alex Capriello, thank you for being the eyes and ears for us and bringing us that color. I want to bring in someone now who knows a lot of what it's like working on both sides of the courtroom. Joe Tacopina is a criminal defense attorney. He's a former prosecutor, and he's like famous as a TV lawyer. I've been working with you for 20 years now, Joe, so I wanted you to weigh in on this about runners. You and I have covered a lot of cases, but I don't know that we've ever had a case, um, I don't think I have, where the defendant has literally been a runner twice, such that there's four to five guards who are standing around her in the courtroom. A, do you think it's a huge deal for the defense attorney because it's going to be brought up to the jury? And B, do you think those jurors notice all those guards who are now standing around her so this kind of thing doesn't happen again? Look, in a normal case, Ashley, um, and good to see you again, by the way, in a normal case, um, this would be a huge deal, a huge deal, because it, it exhibits consciousness of guilt, right? Fleeing is, is, a, is an act that one is normally doing when they're consciousness, conscious of their guilt. So it's called consciousness of guilt. So here it, it, it's, it's tr- troublesome that it happened not only once, but twice. Um, but based on the evidence that Alex just laid out, what I've read and followed in this case so far, I don't think it's going to make a lick of difference in this case. I mean, this this is one of the most powerful circumstantial evidence cases I've ever seen. Um, so much so that the defense was left with, with an opening statement that simply said there's no direct evidence. There's no direct evidence. He didn't even say she didn't do it. He said there's no direct evidence. And that's great. But circumstantial evidence is oftentimes much more powerful than direct evidence, Ashley, as you know. I mean, you know, you could have an individual walk into a room and say it's raining outside, and you have to just trust that person, and then, you know, you have to also question the credibility of the messenger. Opposed to, that's direct evidence, opposed to circumstantial evidence, when a person walks in a room soaking wet with an umbrella, and they're dripping it, dripping wet, and they're shaking off the umbrella, that's pretty powerful evidence that it's raining outside. That's called circumstantial evidence. Sometimes circumstantial evidence is much more powerful than direct evidence, because you don't really get to impeach it. And here, this circumstantial evidence is as powerful as, as any I've seen ever. I'm with you. I think circumstantial cases, if there's a lot of that, those circumstances are more powerful than direct because people make lots of mistakes with their eyewitness testimony. I got one minute left here, but I want to ask you about the whole pattern of her fleeing to Costa Rica, getting the plastic surgery, changing her name, using her sister's passport, escaping the jail guards. If you're a defense attorney, do you just ignore it and hope that the jury forgets they heard all that? Or do you actually try to address it in some way? Yeah, you can't ignore it. And because that jury is not forgetting it, it is in powerful evidence of her changing her look, her being an avid traveler is one thing. Being an avid traveler under someone else's passport in someone else's name and getting plastic surgery to change your appearance is something completely different, right? So I don't want to hear about avid traveler. 
you have to address it. You have to address it. But but the way, the only way you can address it, the only thing you can do is simply say she believed she was going to get railroaded. She knew she would be implicated and targeted for this homicide that she didn't commit. She panicked and she fled. Um, she didn't think she could get a fair trial, whatever it is. That's the, because that, honestly, if she were innocent, that would be the only reason someone would ever flee um, because they think you, they have no. Can you do me a favor? Can you give me just 10 seconds on the grid that we're looking at? She's strawberry blonde in the beginning. She goes dark brown during this whole I'm going to hide in Costa Rica business. And when she came into court today, she is back to being strawberry blonde with a foot long uh, growth of of her hair from the moment she's arrested. Is this going to matter to the jury when they are being told that she changed her appearance? Because when they look at her, they're going to feel like she didn't. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Because they'll see these pictures here. Because when you put this up earlier with Alex... I, I thought there were different people. I thought one was the victim, one was the, the I defendant. I can't believe those five right? are the same, right? So it's clearly not going to matter to the jury that now she looks the same again. I mean, she didn't look the same. She actually had plastic surgery to change her appearance. Um, she she used aliases. She did everything you would do if you're guilty trying to escape justice. It's that simple. Then when you add on all the DNA evidence, the circumstantial evidence, the shutting off the cell phone, yet having yeah. your Jeep, there because the Jeep had a GPS that unfortunately gave you up. Um, the timing of it all, it's just it's overwhelming. There is a zero, zero chance she's being acquitted here. The best you can hope for as defendant is a hung jury. You get some juror who's just like, yeah, there's no direct evidence, you know, and some guy who basically lives in a cave and, and they come out and they they hang a jury. Um, that's it, what you're exist. for. They exist. There's no acquittal here. <laughs> yeah, they, they those people do exist, but I I, I Feel you. Okay, you got to come back. Joe, it's good to see you. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Joe Takapina joining us live tonight and coming up the unbelievable dramatic rescue of this woman who was held captive and then beaten black and blue for four days in an Ohio garage. Take a look at this. Hey, hey, Big arrest and wait till you see what they found when they went through that door. Turns out this suspect... He's done this three times before to other victims. So how on earth was he even allowed to be out breathing our air? After a break, my exclusive interview with one of those prior victims who survived being kidnapped and tortured by him for three days. That's next. In between all of the beatings with a baseball bat, he just lay right down next to the kidnapped woman and cuddled her. In between dousing her with gas, he just cuddled her. And he did this over and over for four days. That's what the police say that guy did just before he was arrested. This is William Mozingo, 33 years old. He is from Kenmore, Ohio, uh, easily recognizable with the face tattoos. And here is what he is alleged to have done to Chloe Jones, 23 years old, someone who didn't know him well, but decided to get a ride home. Police say he took her to an unattached garage at a property where he was sometimes staying and then forced her up into a makeshift attic where for four days... Locked in that garage, she was threatened with her life. I'll slit your throat if you try to leave. He beat her so badly, he broke her bones. He bruised her everywhere. Her face was unrecognizable when he was through with her, police say. And all through it, 
doused her with gas, saying, I'll light you on fire. That in itself would be an unbelievable story. If not for the fact that he had done this three times before to other victims. Been caught, arrested, charged, and jailed. And released. That's the key part here, released. So that Chloe Jones, age 23, from Kenmore, Ohio, had to go through those four days. I want you to watch the moment that uh, after a tip, police got to that unattached garage and like crowbarred their way into the garage. And I want you to see what happened next. Take a look. The female was just caught her out. Come on out here. Come on out here. Is there anybody else in here with me? What do you need to get down? Yeah, she's in the ceiling though. Where do you live at here? Thompson? How far away is that? Why don't you have a sit right seat right down this? I think I just have one person focus on it. You probably live there. I know. Yeah, probably have more shit. Something else? Yeah. I'm just sitting there. Yeah. I love you, Chloe. But if you just met her, how do you love her? Did you hear that last part? I love you, Chloe. If you just met her, how do you love her? That's a really good question. It's a good question to ask uh, in court. Chloe's mom spoke to a news affiliate um, in Cleveland warning other girls to not get into vehicles or go with people they don't know so well. Um, it's just remarkable, though, what, what Chloe looked like uh, as she stood with her mom for this interview. Take a look at this. You can see my face. It's... Um, I wouldn't wish this on, on anybody. And I want to tell, like, the young girls don't, from, you know, across America, like, it's not safe to get in, you know, cars with people you don't know or meet up with friends through friends. He has been convicted three times for the exact same offenses, and he was allowed to reoffend over and over and over. What she's talking about is 2017, he served time for his first abduction in Adams County, Ohio. Also 2017, his second one, while on parole, grabbed Mackenzie Maston and then grabbed his own brother, too. Held them for three days in a bedroom. Uh, somehow they were able to convince him to go to Walmart so that they could give him money. And they got to, at least into a bathroom and called for help. He was arrested. But he had held Mackenzie at knife point. Um, and beaten her as well. He served just two years in prison. Two years later, 2019, third abduction. Again, he's on parole when this happens. And uh, he's out of jail only four months when he tries to strangle his ex, puts a knife to her throat, holds her for four days. She escaped, was found intoxicated and naked in the roadway. And then, of course, two weeks ago, Chloe Jones' story. Um, that second victim I told you about, she's joining me live now for this exclusive interview. Mackenzie Maston um, survived 
William Mozingo. And she's live with me now. First of all, Chloe, I am so glad that you are safe and that you're okay um, and that nothing, or Mackenzie rather, um, that, that nothing worse uh, had happened to you. But I am so curious about those days um, where you spent locked up under his threat. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened during those days? Um, yes. Uh, during those three days, uh, he had us locked up in a room with a knife. Um, he kept saying that we weren't going to be able to go back home to my parents. I kept begging him to just let me go home to my mom and dad. Um, he would continuously put a knife to our throat and saying that he was going to kill us and that I was never going to get to go home, that I didn't deserve to go home to my family. And he would threaten to break my jaw if, you know, I cried or yelled for help or anything like that. And at one point, he even um, took a fan cord um, out of the stand and wrapped a fan cord around his own brother's neck and was choking him and beating him in the head um, and laughing till he was unconscious. And he would continuously beat on us. You were with you were with um, Mozinga's own brother, who was also uh, being held captive. Um, Ultimately, when. There were terrible things that happened to Chloe. She was doused with gas. She was beaten with a baseball bat. Did some of these things happen to you and Mozinga's brother as well? Um, yes, he he would continuously beat on us. Um, he gave me, my eyes were all blacked out and swollen um, from him doing that to us. He put a knife to our throat. Um, he was smashing, throwing and smashing beer bottles at the wall um, by our heads And like I said, he was choking and um, beating his brother in the head, too, and laughing the entire time um, and had us locked in that room for three days. It was probably the most scariest experience of my life. It's astounding. He was on parole when he did this to you. You were the second victim of Mozinga. And yet all he got was two years in prison. I mean, when he was let out, he did it again to his ex-girlfriend and now allegedly to, to Chloe Jones. What, were, what went through your mind when you heard about this attack on, on Chloe Jones and when you saw her emerge with, with black eyes from that, that makeshift prison? I just couldn't believe that he was out and able to do it again after doing it so many times. And my heart and my prayers go out to Chloe and her family for what she had to go through. And I just want her to know that she's not alone in this and that she's not the only one that he did this to. Do you know where his brother is now? Because I just think that if there's a pattern witness that, you know, testifies in the trial uh, related to, to Chloe's case, that you might be a witness and, and his own brother might be a witness. Do you know where what happened to his brother? Um, his After it happened and the police were able to rescue us, um, I hurried up and had us pack our stuff up and I brought him back here um, home with me because I was scared to have him up there. Um, in that predicament still in case he was able to get back out. And um, ever since then, um, after a while, he ended up moving out to Texas just so he wasn't anywhere near the situation or around him again when he got out. Mackenzie, your story is just unbelievable. I am so sorry this happened to you. But again, I am so happy that you are alive and safe and potentially could help in the in the trial against this um, this serial offender. Thank you for telling your story, Mackenzie.
You're welcome. And I just hope that he gets what he deserves and that they will learn their lesson this time and not let him walk on the streets and hurt another woman again. Completely understandable. Just to, We'll continue to follow this case, and to our viewers, um, for sure, we will let you know what, uh, what happens. Thank you again, Mackenzie Maston. And still to come, just ahead, um, a cruel and conniving murder with a twist worthy of Hitchcock. A woman allegedly poisons her common-law husband when she finds out he's about to inherit $30 million and dump her. The police catch on, she's arrested, and suddenly, the money vanishes. Where did all those millions go? The incredible story when we come back. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ina Kanoyer probably tonight is asking the question over and over again, where the hell is the $30 million? Because I know that's what I would be asking. Uh, she is um, in uh, Minot, North, North Dakota, a place I know well. Um, and she's sitting in a jail cell charged with um, murdering her boyfriend slash common-law husband of 10 years. She's charged with lacing the sweet tea that he was drinking with antifreeze. Let me back up for a second on all of this. The, the victim here is Stephen Riley. And he recently learned that he was in line to inherit $30 million dollars. And Ina caught wind of it, according to the police, uh, and also caught wind that Steve was going to dump her. They'd been together 10 years. She figured she was entitled to some of the $30 million, you know, because of common law stuff. And when he got sick all of a sudden, the friends of his smelled a rat. They called the police, and wouldn't you know it, the police found a whole trove of evidence. Ina had been telling everybody that he just got heat stroke. That's why he was sick. It was not heat stroke. When the police searched her home, they found a beer bottle and a plastic mug and a Windex bottle filled with a green liquid that is suspected to be antifreeze. And during her interrogation, she apparently, according to the court docs, told the police, uh, well, Google says the symptoms of heat stroke can mimic poisoning. <laughs> you don't make this stuff up, folks. She also told the cops that Steve had been drinking all day and had heat stroke, but there was no alcohol in Stephen's system. She also suggested to the cops that, well, he could have had antifreeze in his system because if he dropped his cigarette into the antifreeze and then smoked it, well, then wouldn't it, you know, you know, yeah. Ina Knoyer finally just gave up because the stories were just getting too difficult to keep straight. Uh, and she, according to police, just confessed, confessed to it all that she just laced his tea. And now she's facing a murder charge. And here's the twist. On the way to the airport, they were supposed to be meeting an, a lawyer. Lawyer said, come on out to the airport. I've got the $30 million that a distant relative has uh, left to you. You just need to come to the airport and bring your banking information. Ever had that happen? Ever had that kind of story in an email? Yeah, it turns out the whole thing was a scam. The victim's son, whose name is Riley, uh, Ryan Riley, he told the New York Post that his dad got scammed. No one ever showed up at that airport. There was no $30 million kind of feels like the whole thing was for naught. 
also <laughs> for not. Turns out police told her that there is not a common law recognition in North Dakota. You would not have been party to that 30 mil. Joining me now is Sky Lazaro, a Utah criminal defense attorney who currently represents Corey Richens, who's a Utah mom accused of poisoning her husband with fentanyl. Okay, Sky. So this is what I call a big, long series of bad facts, real hard to defend. What do you call it? Well, on first glance, it appears that way. Um, without getting the full picture, it's always hard to know. Um, obviously, she's presumed innocent until... Uh, they can prove her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, there's probably a lot more information that's going to come out over the course of this case. Um, but g- given what we know and what's been put in the probable cause statement, it doesn't, you know, there's some bad facts there. Doesn't look, doesn't look good, right? It's kind of bad facts, especially <laughs> that big fact, which is, okay, I did it. I put the glycol into his sweet tea. That's always terrible. I do want to ask you, though, about the scammer. Because whoever did this, um, you know, caused a horrible chain of events. And there's a man who's dead. And the way I look at it is that that guy, you know, he, he committed a felony and a death resulted. So is that scammer, if they ever catch him, is he due for a felony murder charge? Probably not. Potentially, unfortunately, uh, these people are almost impossible to track down and almost always are overseas. And so finding them uh, becomes uh, virtually impossible in most of these cases. But uh, potentially if they ever do find them. That's what I thought. If they ever can track the guy, and that's tough, uh, maybe they can Mm -hmm. actually charge him. But that other little nugget, the police told um, Ina, and apparently she was devastated when she heard it, uh, there is no common law recognition in North Dakota. You wouldn't have been part of that 30 mil. So you killed a guy, allegedly, uh, for nothing. Is that really true? Is that that true state to state? Some states just don't recognize a 10-year common law relationship like that? That's correct. Common law marriage is different uh, state by state by virtue of it being common law. So some states, yes, um, there's different factors that go into it. But the short answer is yes. Every state's different. Sad story all around with some really crazy twists. You, my friend, have to come back. Will you do that? I will definitely come back. (laughs) Anytime. Sky Lazaro, great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Coming up next. um, So uh, if you recognize this house, I get it. It has become eerily familiar to everybody. This is the place where the four University of Idaho students were murdered last year, almost a year ago to the day. Um, Today, the boards went back up onto those windows and doors. And once again, it was crawling with FBI agents. So what did they find in the two days that they allowed the sunlight to finally pour through those windows for the first time in almost a year? Brian Enton is live next. For a very brief time, sunlight poured back into a very dark place, a place that has been dark for about a year, where some very dark things happened. Um, they pried the plywood off of the windows and the doors at 1122 King Road in Idaho, where those four students were murdered almost a year ago. And they did it so that FBI and prosecutors could go back and look at them up there in the window. This was video today. They've been at it for two days, leaning out a window, looking at all sorts of possibilities, measurements, we're told. Pretty fascinating, though, that uh, it was supposed to be torn down, and yet 
that plywood came off. And again, after they were done today, the plywood went back on. Brian Enton was watching it all. He is live right now, our News Nation senior national correspondent. Brian, it's distressing to think that they had that much work to do at a place behind you that's now boarded up again that they were going to tear down. What did they get? Anything special that you were able to ascertain from your position? Uh, They're not telling us. Basically, what they're saying on the record is that they wanted to do 3D imaging, that the FBI wanted to bring in their 3D imaging cameras, which we saw, by the way. They had them all set up outside, and then they went in, what we could tell from the outside, looking through the windows, every single room in the house. They had the windows open. They took all the boards off. They also seemed to be using drones over the house. They were going in in and out of the house all day again today. So it was a busy day again today. Uh, And then around 4 o'clock, the FBI packed everything up. FBI left. uh, And then the Moscow police boarded the entire house up again. And you can see it's all closed off again behind me tonight. All of this at the same time that Brian Koberger's aunt broke her silence and said a couple of things. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, she spoke to a a different publication, The Sun, and and said that she was concerned about his mental health, said that she thought that he may be suicidal or could possibly be suicidal in the future. What's interesting is that is really a contradiction to uh, what we have been reporting and the sources that we have who say his mental health is actually the same as it has always been, that he is not suicidal, that he is not on suicide watch, that he's still in solitary confinement, Uh, that he is very much studying and a part of the preparation for his case. I saw him in court last week. He looked pretty much the same uh, as he'd always looked to me. So so they're sort of, you know, going against what that aunt said uh, when she spoke to the son. And she said she thinks he'll be found guilty. Shocking. Brian Enton, thank you. Appreciate all the work out there. Uh, Coming up in just a moment, um, several weeks ago, the company Ring.com announced a million-dollar prize for anybody who caught evidence of extraterrestrial activity on their doorbell cams. And tonight, there might be a winner. After the break, is it what we've all been waiting for? And is it worth a million bucks? Video's next. about a month ago when the company ring.com came out with an announcement that they were going to give a million dollars to anybody who could capture evidence of aliens on their ring doorbell cams. It was called the rings million dollar search for extraterrestrials. And I am just here to tell you, I am officially going to collect. That's right. Because um, there was a lot of activity in my neighborhood last night, about 730, all this activity, but this one stood out and I want my money. Yep. I'm telling you, it's pretty convincing. I don't think I 